we are uh, in the middle of a series where we're talking about some of the big questions that people have, uh, some of us have, and sometimes you feel like maybe you aren't allowed to share those questions or talk about those questions, or maybe you were even told that if you uh, grew up in a church that didn't like uh, asking questions. And today we're talking about the Bible uh, and just uh, what it is and why it is and why we even have that. It's, it's kind of a strange uh, thing if you back yourself up and think about uh, there's this group of people who all have this book, and we have the book in, in different kinds of shapes and sizes. Some people have the book on their app on their phone now, and, and we all live our lives according to this book. And if you ask the average person, like, why, why do we use the Bible instead of another book, right? Uh, uh, well, I don't know, right? Like, when I started being a Christian, they gave me this book and said, read everything in there and do everything it says, right? And so I tried to find all the Amalekites and... <laughs> Uh, like uh, and killed their cows, but uh, the Bible is actually um, this text uh, that was written over uh, like a thousand and a half years by probably around forty uh, people, uh, and it has this clear uh, theme going through it of God's love for humanity, of God's uh, self-sacrifice towards that humanity, and God's eventual restoration. Uh, of his full relationship with humanity. That's, the, that's basically what we would call the good news or the gospel, which is intertwined all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we're using, uh, I just, this is just preamble, we're using this uh, textbook, uh, it's not a textbook, this paperback book uh, called The Problem of God, which was written by a guy named Mark Clark. He's from uh, Vancouver in British Columbia in Canada, and he pastors a church there. And it's kind of... Um, uh, it answers a lot of the big, big questions about Jesus. It's not like a whole bunch of new information, uh, but uh, it, like it's not novel or something like he didn't invent something, but it kind of structures it in a way that helps people understand. So we've been structuring our conversation the same way. If you're a reader, uh, you can grab this. We have a couple of copies still left at our go-kart in the back, and you can stop by there. Or if you're brand new to the church and you want to get some more information, you can stop by there. They have some resources that are free and some that... Uh, you need to pay for and stuff like that because we can't afford to give everything away. But um, this book kind of goes through, and one of the chapters is on the scripture. And I'm not going to uh, talk about everything he talks about. You can just read the book if you if you want to. But uh, I, we will kind of use that as a structure for having our conversation. And we're in week three, uh, and like last week we talked about how we know God exists or not. Uh, next week we're going to talk about uh, how we deal with evil and suffering in the world. Like if God exists and he's all-powerful, why is there bad things, right? Or why are there bad things in our world? Those are important questions. And, and maybe you don't ask that, uh, but I would bet the people that you love uh, do ask that. There are people who are wondering about God. How can this God be all-powerful and be good and there be so much bad in the world around us? For me, uh, the Bible is insanely important uh, in my personal life. I love the Bible. I read the whole thing. And uh, <laughs> the first time I read through the Bible, I had a Bible through a year, in, read through the Bible in a year plan. And this was before the internet. So there was like, it was like on a little brochure. Six years. It took me six years to go through the Bible in one year. It's much longer than you, than, than you thought, you know? Like, uh, and if you've never heard of Leviticus, uh, there's a book in the Bible called Leviticus, and that's like a Hebrew word for pain and torture and suffering if you have to read this, you know, like it is, it is if you have red mold in your home and you're wondering what to do with it, or Leviticus will help you, or if you're wearing clothes made out of two different materials, Leviticus will condemn you. But um, <laughs> the, uh, when we talk about the Bible, uh, it, it gets a little bit difficult because the, we don't want to say that the Bible is self-proving. Like the Bible is true because the Bible says it is true. 
right? We have to back up further than that. And so our doctrine actually doesn't rest on the Bible. It rests on the authority that the Bible has because it is the Word of God. So the authority that the Bible has, the reason that we read the Bible together and that we obey the Bible and that we live out what the Bible says and we are a people of this Scripture, uh, the reason is because it carries the authority of God. And that authority of God is what is actually important. It isn't, this is why we don't follow other books. Uh, we read other books, and they help us in our spiritual lives, so they help us with other things, right? Like we, we read the DMV books so that we can learn to drive, or we read uh, medical manuals so we can become a doctor. Uh, those, those books are great and everything, but we don't say that they carry the authority of God uh, with, like the Scripture does. Um, let me begin here. This is the Gospel of John, which was written by Jesus' best friend when he was on earth. This is how it, it begins, and it was referred to in, uh, by our friend uh, young Sheldon. It says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, uh, which is quite a sentence to begin a, a story of Jesus' life with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and like maybe beside God, and the Word was God as well. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It actually goes on and on. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, uh, like if, if you go to a Bible college and you take a class on the Gospel of John, the first half of the class, the first semester, will be on these 18 verses, and the second semester will be on everything else, uh, because there's so much packed into there. So, but this actually refers to, if you're a fan of the same, it's a, um, Marshall McEwen actually said this, that the, the medium is the message. In the case of God, uh, you can't separate the medium from the message. God is his message in the most purest form possible because God is without any pretense because he's without sin. And so God is the very message that God brings, which doesn't mean that the Bible is God. It means the message of the Bible reveals God in its absolute form, like it is uh, the Bible is sufficient in revealing who God is. You can know who God is by reading the Scripture because the message of the Scripture is this love that God has for humanity and this love that God has, well, the Bible tells us God is love. And in that creative work of God in using his voice and speaking to us, he actually creates all things. Uh, Jesus exists as the message of God, and Jesus comes to us as the living flesh and blood uh, message of God. And in this scripture is life. And that life is a light to all mankind. And that light cannot be overcome. It shines in every darkness, no matter how dark. When we've talked for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about something that theologians call general revelation. Uh, which means there's kind of this availability of who God is that exists in, in like all creation around us. When we look at the intricacies at the small size and the uh, vastness of the cosmos, there's this revelation in a general sense of God. And we talked about this in Romans chapter 1. It talks about we know that God is eternal and he is divine and he's powerful. This is just everybody knows this. But then there's this thing called special revelation that uh, theologians use these words. Uh, and that special revelation, or is a particular revelation, is the Scripture. It is the Bible. Because this is a specific thing that God created 
that is different than everything else in order for us to know who God is and what God wants for our lives and in our lives and what he wants to do in the world through the people that love him. This, uh, Mark Clark asked these questions, and I want to ask them. I'm going to put them on the screen because you've probably heard these questions. Uh, or if, if you have discussions with your friends, people will ask you, or maybe you're asking this, and, and maybe you don't feel like it's safe to ask this. Well, I'm going to ask them out loud in a microphone and put them on the, sheet, uh, on the screen. So, Is the Bible historically legitimate? Like, are those stories, did that actually happen? Did Jesus walk on water? Did Jesus come back from the dead? Uh, hasn't the Bible changed throughout history? Like, didn't it used to say this and now it says this? Uh, isn't there a long list of contradictions and mistakes in the Bible? You know, I talk about this all the time. There's a place in the Old Testament that says there was a well that was 10 feet across and 30 feet around. And we know it would be 31.4 feet around, right? Anybody with 10th grade math knows that. So you all should amen. Like, yes, I agree, even though you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Aren't the Gospels uh, filled with legends that got worked in later? Like, wasn't it massaged a bit and the authors of the Gospels changed the stories to make Jesus look a little better? Uh, isn't the Bible full of outdated and ancient moral teachings? Isn't the Bible written by people who wanted power? So didn't they write this with an agenda in order to help their position move forward? And why does the church only include four Gospels? What's wrong with the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas? Uh, here's the, we could go through these or you could just buy the book. <laughs> so I'm going to suggest that. Uh, but I want to talk about these just for a second, all right? Uh, is the Bible historically legitimate? Yes. Okay, by the book. Uh, hasn't it changed throughout history? <laughs> there, there's a couple things that are interesting in this that I do want to talk about. As we've gotten biblical copies, uh, in the Bible, you've read, uh, if you've read the Gospels, Jesus had these opponents that talked to him who were like Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. The scribes were actually people whose job it was in the world to recopy the Bible. Uh, and that for them, at that time, it would have been the Old Testament Torah, parts of it. And so they would recopy this and recopy this and recopy this, and they would actually learn, like if they were copying a section of it, they would know what the middle letter is so they could count and make sure that letter is right. And they would have two supervisors, and there's like historical documents that talk about this, that the, you'd be copying and have two people over your shoulder making sure you didn't make a mistake. Because they don't have like the backspace button, right? So they can't just cut and paste the scripture, and they didn't even have a printing press. They had people who would write them out. Uh, and so the people who had good penmanship and didn't make mistakes would, would copy these things out. And there's actually like the mistakes in the Bible tend to be, uh, or the debated passages in the Bible, there's two debated passages, uh, like uh, Mark 15 and John 8. But if you open up your Bible, it's noted, hey, people aren't sure if this should be in or not. We're including it because in some manuscripts it's not there, in some manuscripts it is there, and we're not sure why. Uh, so the, the good translations of the scripture actually tell you that. Like, we're not sure about these two passages. Uh, but there are other things uh, that are generalizations that people tend to go, well, uh, we're not sure. Like, is the, is the 400,000 people that crossed the Red Sea uh, with Moses when, when the Red Sea was split? Or was it just 400,000 men, and then there were other people added on to that because there would have been women and children as well? And those kinds of things are mathematical numbers that aren't core to the actual, like, point of the story. And, and there's times when the same gospels or two different gospels include the same story, but they include some different details. And, and the truth is that that actually happens from perspectives. 
people say, this is really important, so I'm going to share this. Like the Gospel of Luke talks about Jesus' birth, whereas the Gospel of Mark doesn't think that's important at all. Like where Jesus, how Jesus was born, actually not important at all. Let's move on, and the end of Jesus' life is way more significant. And so there's some perspective stuff there, and you can't actually take the personalities out of the people that, that wrote the Bible. Um, they didn't add in, I don't think they added in stuff later, I don't buy into that theme, because there's so much stuff in the scripture that actually looks bad to the people who wrote it. If you read the book of Acts, or if you read the Gospels, uh, like the disciples don't come off looking awesome. And if they wrote this afterwards, we would ha- infer that they would have thought, hey, let's make ourselves look good. Like Peter, you know the story of Peter denying, you might not know. When Jesus was arrested, Peter actually was asked, aren't you his friend? And he said, no, three times. Like totally bailed on Jesus, the worst kind of friend. It's included in the story. And you would think Peter, because he's a leader in the early church, would say, hey, I got an idea. Let's not include that story. That's not going to engender any confidence in the guy in charge. And either they all hated Peter, which is not true, or it was included because it's a story of redemption. It's not a story of how great the people are. Um, And you can go through, I have some opinions on uh, isn't the Bible full of ancient and outdated moral teachings? And you can read in Jeremiah 33 about the transition. Uh, There's some great books out there that you can read about these things. But I don't want to sit in these stories, if that's okay. Uh, I I just kind of want to address this and say this. There are answers to these questions. And we could do that right now, but it would be kind of a, become like a, a, a classroom, and I don't want to necessarily do that as the classroom part. We are going to do a classroom part, though. Um, and here's the classroom part. Here's where the Bible comes from. Uh, you might not know this, uh, but the Bible that you have, written in your language, uh, people were actually, like, um, imprisoned, uh, tried to put to death for translating the Bible into a language that you can understand. Uh, it's... The Bible is this volatile book that we as, as a people can read. Like I have, uh, like I, I'm not kidding, I have this library with all these shelves and books and one whole shelf is all Bibles. And I kind of collect interesting Bibles because I find it funny. Uh, I have Bibles in different languages that I pick up you know, from wherever. Uh, whenever pastors retire, they give away all their books because they realize these weren't as helpful as I thought. I just had them up so people thought I was smart. And so I pick up books, and if they went on a mission trip to some island, they probably bought a Bible there because they're sentimental that way, and so now I have Bibles in languages that I don't even know what the language is. It's just fun to me. Uh, I have in my phone, uh, you have the Version app in your phone. If you don't have this, you need to get this. We actually set up events in the Version app, so you can click on this, and all the screen things are in that app. Uh, but I can get thousands of copies of the Bible in my pocket. It's so, so, so available Uh, And that thought pattern never existed. If you go back 50 years, nobody ever thought that I would be able to get the Icelandic translation immediately uh, in case I needed it. (laughs) That was a joke. All right, glad we're tracking. I don't need it. Around 2000 BC, uh, people started sharing these stories of the Scripture. And there's some people who think this happened way, way, way earlier, but the original scriptures, and we're talking Genesis 1 and 2, maybe like the book of Job, which is one of the first stories ever written down, the, one of the first books of the Bible ever written down. These old, old stories were probably passed on orally, and it's kind of this general consensus that Moses, one of the major leaders in the Old Testament, actually wrote down and codified the first five books of the Bible. The fun thing is the very last chapter is about Moses' death and funeral, And the question is, did God tell him that and he wrote it down and then went and died? (laughs) 
Or did someone else add that on? And we can argue that or actually move on to something that matters. But uh, from around maybe 2000, maybe 1500 BC up till about 400 BC, the Old Testament that we have in the Bible was written down. And the last book was written down around like 440 years before the Common Era, before the birth of Jesus. And then the New Testament started being written, uh, well, let me say before that, around 200 or 250 BC, there was something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that became, uh, like we still can, you can look that stuff up and read it. Uh, it became super influential in translating the Bible because there weren't as many people that spoke Hebrew. Greek was a more common language. And so the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament was translated into Greek so people could read it. Uh, well, so Jewish people could read it uh, who didn't speak Hebrew because the Jewish people were moving all over the world. And then from around the year 45 to maybe 40 to around the year 85 or 90, the New Testament is written which means there's this 500-year gap. When you go in your Bible from Malachi and you turn the page and there's Matthew, it's like 500 years past in that turning of that page, 500 years of stuff that happens. And some of those, like there's histories of that included. If you uh, grew up Catholic and you have uh, the Jerusalem Bible, it includes something called the Apocrypha and some of those Bibles stories are in there. Those weren't included in Protestant or Orthodox or Catholic uh, sorry, or, yes, they were included in Catholic. Orthodox Bibles included some of them, but not all of them. This is all going to make sense in a second. <laughs> Around the year 90, uh, or maybe the year 118, there were these pseudo-councils, which means they were pretended to have councils, but they weren't actually councils. They were just talking to each other, uh, where they actually formed, hey, this is what the Old Testament's going to be. If you have Jewish friends, they have the same Old Testament that we have. They don't call it the Old Testament. It's the only testament. And they group things differently. Where we have first and second kings, they just have kings. Where we have 14 minor prophets, they have the minor prophets as one book. And they don't understand why we need to divide things up so well. And as Protestants, we're like, dividing is kind of our specialty. So around the year 140 or 150, a guy named Marcion, he produces a, uh, a New Testament that is completely heretical. He says, this is what the New Testament is. And the, the, the Martian heresy, this guy, actually said that the God of the Old Testament isn't good, isn't true, but Jesus is. And so he would just dismiss everything in the Old Testament, that that Yahweh God was a false God, maybe a demon or something, that was something back there, and Jesus is the true God, and we only follow Jesus, and we don't follow that. And people would say, well, Jesus himself disagreed with that. Like Jesus himself quotes the Old Testament scripture and, and speaks and prays to the Old Testament God. So there's some complications there in Martian. You disagree with Jesus. But he was said to be a heretic. But that controversy actually prompted the church, notice the years, around a year 140 or 150, to start saying, hey, maybe we should codify or maybe we should group together. These are the books that we see as inspired of God. And we should read these and follow these. A hundred years later, a guy named Origen actually publishes what looks like the first list of New Testament books. We like to skip over this because Origen was way too smart for his own good. Origen was an aesthetic who, uh, he didn't wear shoes, he slept in a cave, but he was insanely genius. Like he learned languages so that he could read the Bible in original languages. He was later said to be a heretic because he did some things that were uh, sometimes gross and sometimes 
heresy. He had a whole thing that now uh, the Mormon church believes that they produce about a pre-existence of our souls that's not biblical. But Origen, this guy, is kind of like our crazy uncle of theology that we don't really talk about. And if he can't make it to the wedding, nobody complains. Uh, Origen produced this, this list. Uh, and this list of, hey, these are the books that we should say. And then 100 years after that, in the year 367, a guy named Athanasius, he would write, Athanasius was the bishop in Alexandria, and every year the bishop in Alexandria would write out a letter saying, hey, this is when Easter is going to be next year. It was a, a festel letter of, of what the festivals were going to be for the church. So he would determine, the bishop of Alexandria would. And in his 39th festel letter, he actually makes a list of the full and complete, all 27 books, of this is the New Testament. 30 years after that, something called the Council of Carthage actually gets all these leaders together and they say, orthodoxy for all people in all places, this is the New Testament. 397. So it took years and years and years and years. And the one way of looking at that is saying, well, all these people were just looking for power and they were putting it together and they were doing this and they were controlling. But they actually had these conversations and they had these tests like, is this orthodox? Is this in line with what the scripture teaches? There's things in the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas that make Jesus rather vindictive or make Jesus selective uh, with his kindness. Uh, and and we, we would say that doesn't match with the character of Jesus that, we, that the people know and that the people talk about and that the other Gospels that are more widely held actually believe. Plus there's some authorship issues and uh, it gets a little complex that way. But then these councils built and built and built and built. Here's what this means. The church, in its first 400 years, took on the responsibility of saying, here, like there's all this stuff out there, and here's what we as a large group think the scripture is. This is what God seems to be leading us to say. This is what the scripture is. And then the church, in a historical sense, said, okay, we're done. Like we're not adding new books. This is what we believe. And this is, it's not that other books aren't helpful. It's not that other books aren't even inspirational. It's just that this is where we go. And this, like these books are where we go and what we believe about these things. And there's been plenty of controversy. Martin Luther in the early 1500s tried to get rid of the book of James. Jerk, right? Like uh, that's what you're thinking, right? Like what a jerk. But the book of James actually says some things. Martin Luther is very much about like it's faith alone and that's it. And the book of James says, well, if you don't do anything, your faith is just a concept. It's not real. Your faith has to have actions connected to it. And Martin Luther was, no, it doesn't. You can just have faith. So let's get rid of the book of James. It's, it's nutty stuff, but he had these conversations. That wasn't what he ever, he got in trouble for way worse stuff. <laughs> but the patterns of the early church were very, very clear in keeping Scripture central and determining what that scripture is, which is why we have issues with um, other faiths uh, like Mormonism that adds new scriptures. We would say uh, we are not finding that to be in line with the story that the church is telling in the world. But to say that the church like arrived with this Bible that was intact and whole, like God came down off the mountain, like he carved it into a stone and gave us these tablets and said, here's the scripture, right? That just didn't happen. It's way messier. But I find that to be way more in pattern with the way that God operates. Right? 
God comes to earth in human form and lives among people, and not like the holy and sacred people, not with the royalty, not with the best of the best. He pulls together these disciples that are like fishermen and tax collectors and just regular Joes. And, and then we do things like baptism and communion. And we celebrate communion where we eat uh, of what's, uh, like the bread is called the body of Christ and the, the cup or the wine or the juice is called the, the blood of Christ. It's the holiest things imaginable given to people like us. Uh, given to ordinary, unsacred people. And what God does is seems to take the most sacred things and give it to the most ordinary people and say, let's see what happens. Because the sacredness of God actually pours out on us in such a way that it makes us sacred. So it's, it's really, really difficult for us to blemish God because God is so busy making us so holy and so pure. His light shines so bright that our darkness cannot overcome it. So there's this scripture that we have that, frankly, was put together by the very early church. Our church today has a responsibility, doesn't it? Like this church, the Grove, has a responsibility, and then the church in the world today has a responsibility to address and to interact with the issues of our day. There aren't people coming out and saying, here's the new New Testament, the way that guy Marcion did in like the year 140 or 150. So we don't have to address that controversy. We're addressing other controversies. What does Christianity look like in a pluralistic society? What does now our, our generations are dealing with? What does Christianity look like when it no longer bears a privileged position in our culture, in our world, when Christianity isn't the dominant powerful religion? Are there some uh, good things there? And are there some new challenges there? Yes, both but we bear the responsibility for future generations to be able to pass the faith on so that our children and our grandchildren and our great-great-great-great-grandchildren will actually be able to know that they were handed a faith that is intact and handed a faith that, uh, I don't like to use the word relevant, but handed a faith that actually can answer the questions that our culture is asking. So there's these patterns. So what do we do with the Bible? I'm going to go back to the Bible and actually read your scriptures about what the Bible says we should do with the Bible. I think that's a, a good thing to do with the scripture. If you can see why I read the Bible and why I believe it, because the people who came before me who followed Jesus said, hey, this is what we think. And now we've been following that, and that seems to be extremely life-giving. So this is Psalm 119. If you open your book, like if you have a Bible that's got pages, uh, and you open it up, you're probably going to open to the book of Psalms. It's huge. And if you open up the book of Psalms, you're probably going to hit 119 because it's huge. Uh, but this is verse 9, 10, 11. Psalm 19 has hundreds of verses. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Uh, it's kind of like, like a late 70s rock song, right? You're like, okay, we get the point, but we're going to keep going for 17 minutes. Uh, how can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? I, will, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to have a pure relationship with Jesus, if you want to live in the world in a pure way, read the Bible. And actually, hide the word in your heart means like memorize the Bible. Like read it so much that you actually know what the Bible teaches without having to look it up. Memorize things in the Bible. This isn't something that we often do. Like if you grew up doing like, a, like an Awana or some kind of Christian Boy Scout thing, 
You memorize verses so you can get a, like a sticker or a stamp or a badge on your whatever, right? And, or a free trip to something, camp in the summer. But memorizing scripture is actually the way that scripture says in order to live for God, memorize what the scripture says. Nowhere else do we do this, right? Except we do. If you want to live in relationship with people that have certain interests, you memorize things. You memorize Russell Wilson's QBR in order to have conversations with other fanatics about mid-level football teams. You learned to say, ooh, when the pastor rips on your mid to lower level football team. <laughs> but you learn these things, right? <laughs> that was totally fishing. I'm sorry. Like, you learned, oh, now my phone is buzzing. Oh, you guys. <laughs> you, it wasn't anything. Oh. And so please don't start texting me. <laughs> But you learn if you're into music, you start memorizing the words to the songs. And if you follow a certain band enough, you memorize the words to those songs and you put them in your heart in order to figure out how to live in the world and live in your groups. If you want to live for Jesus in our world, you read the scripture to the point that it gets inside of you. Uh, this actually, later on, this Psalm 1905, it actually says this, that your word is actually described as a lamp for my feet a light on my path. If you want to know what to do next, if you want to know what, like you're faced with a choice and where do I go, the Bible itself says, follow the Bible, move forward. The Bible will show you what the steps are in order for you to move forward and what it is to follow God. The Bible does that. So when I talk to people and they're like, I just don't know what to do, the obvious question is, what do you think the Bible says? Have you tried reading the Bible? And in, in like maybe 50 years ago, that means flipping through, flipping through, flipping through. Or when I was a kid, I'd go to my pastor and say, hey, or my youth pastor and say, hey, I'm, I'm wondering about this. What are some good verses about that? Now you can just Google that thing. Like, what does the Bible say about this? And you can find scriptures that will point you in the right direction. You have to be somewhat intelligent to know that the scriptures that it gives you are actually in the Bible. But you can check those things. You can have conversations. Uh, then it says this. This is 2 Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. This is a guy named Paul writing to a younger leader named Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has, leave this up for a second, but God has actual things in mind for your life, good works, planned in advance, for which you are the person that God wants to use in order to do those things. In order for you to be equipped to do those things, it is completely dependent on your relationship to your scripture in getting into the word that is going to be useful for you for teaching and rebuking you, correcting you, and training you in righteousness. If you feel like God isn't using me, there's nothing in my life that really says like God is active. It might be that God is, is active, but you are ill-equipped to be able to do the things that God wants to do. 
That's a challenging thing, isn't it? Like, I don't mean to be condemning. I don't mean to be guilt-tripping. Because I believe that God has great works planned for you. But those great works will become much less great if you have decided not to be equipped in the Scripture. God will give you opportunities in order to be a light, in order to be life in your community. And the Word of God is more available now than ever before. I have people that say, like, well, I just don't like reading, right? It's like saying, well, I just don't like exercising. Well, there's, there's no other plan, right? Like, there's nothing else you can do. I want to run marathons, but I don't like running. What? Like, then it's Netflix marathons for you. <laughs> but there is, like, if you want to follow Jesus, there's a path to be equipped by getting into the Scripture. Having a Bible habit, like, it, seriously, if you don't like reading, your YouVersion app will read it to you. You can get in the car, hit play, drive, and have Scripture being read instead of the garbage radios. Well, maybe you have serious radio, but uh, rather than listen to music, you can listen to Scripture. You can find yourself being equipped. And I'm not against music. Knock yourself out. But you can actually, if like the I don't like reading excuse doesn't work for me anymore because it will read it to you. The Bible is available to you in translations that make sense, translations that are common, translations that are formal, different styles of English language, or if English isn't your primary language, there's different styles of other languages as well. Having a Bible habit, like inside your program, I write down these are the next steps, these are the things you need to do. Having a Bible habit is the thing you need to do. The YouVersion app, if you don't have it, you download it, actually has plans for you. And you can get plans, like reading the Bible in a year is a ridiculous plan, right? Like people who do that, uh, that isn't the first step, right? Like it's like it's, you want to sign up for a 5K before you sign up for a marathon. If that's what you want to do, go ahead, knock yourself out. But the version actually has like three-day plans. And you can be like, I'm going to do this three-day plan. And then they give you like a prize or something at the end, and this is kind of serotonin bump and, you know, whatever. It's manipulative, but it's cognitive science. So... Uh, <laughs> You can sign up for short-term things. If you miss a day in the YouVersion app, there's a button that says, catch me up. It's completely guilt-free. Like, it's like, wow, I missed 75 days of my three-day plan. You hit one button, I'm caught up. And then it shares with all your friends when you finish your three-day plan, right? Like, I finished my three-day plan. And your friends won't remember that you started that 75 days ago. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, though, like, a lot of you might be hearing this and saying, I read my Bible every day from now on for one hour. Sometimes I read Bible plans that are very short and have, like the one I'm reading right now has a devotional and three verses. I have some other Bible things I do, but my version plan, I actually am reading about three verses from version every day. And uh, you want to know something? I missed yesterday. Doesn't that stink? Because it records how many days in a row you have, and I was up to like seven or eight, and now I'm at one one. I'm a pastor and I'm at one. There's no button to fix that either. I emailed them and I was like, hey, come on. And they said, no, we're not fixing that. That's literally true. <laughs> but you can sign up for a plan and you can get into the scripture. Like there's no excuse. The, the church's Bible literacy is at an all-time low. And the excuses are also should be at an all-time low because it's so easy to get into your Bible. 
Your impact in the world for Christ grows as you're into the Bible. And as you're in that habit, this is like I have next steps in the bulletin. The first thing is get a habit. The second thing is expect your habit to pay off. Because if you want to have a powerful life for Christ, if you want to be doing things that are remarkable for Christ, he has those things already planned for you. You being equipped is key to those things actually happening. And so when you get a Bible habit and you start growing in your ability or being trained in righteousness, you will actually start experiencing greater things for Christ and finding yourself going, I never expected that I would be doing these things for God and all of a sudden you're doing them. Not because of something awesome you've done, because you read your scripture, because you memorize it, because you hide God's word in your heart. When you have big decisions, you go to the Bible and try to decide, hey, what do I do with my life? What do I do with these things? You start having a clear sense of purpose in your life, not because you've done a workshop or you figured out who you are or done your DNA test, because you've gone to the scripture and you're equipped for the good works that Christ has for you. Let me pray for us. Let's stand, I'll pray for us, and then we'll worship. Our God, we are thankful for the way that you speak to us. Forgive us, seriously, forgive us for not taking your Bible more seriously than we do, for not treating it uh, like it's more precious than we do, because it is the very words of God written to us. It is the letter, like a, almost like a love letter from Jesus to our own hearts. And so I pray that you would make us a people who go to the scripture. Free us from guilt. Free us from like a sense of uh, just like rote religiosity where we're just doing things in order to get brownie points, but actually speak to us every time we read it. I would ask that this week, God, because there's people in this room who are going to start a new version plan and think of something and try to say, I'm going to read my Bible. And I pray that you would speak to them and bless their effort and that we would find ourselves growing in our faith and growing in the righteous deeds that are done because we're following the instructions of your Bible. Hear our praise in this place because you love us and you're willing to speak to us. We sing to you. And we worship you because you found us worth the effort and you found us worth the time in order to give us your word and your light and your life to our path and to all mankind. By your grace we pray, amen.